Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Rawinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Roger Chakraborty from Hackney and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, a big thank you to Roger Joy Chakraborty, who I think that was pronounced Rudge, wasn't it, uh, on the recording there, Catherine? And uh, I would say that Rudge has got a pretty good voice for a podcast and mm. should perhaps have my job. Um, but, you know. A, th- a threateningly good voice. Yeah. But anyway. Huge. And a fellow Londoner. Far more yeah. convenient for me than, than Solihull. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> I've been ditched. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to move on very quickly in order to keep my job. And uh, yeah, huge thank you for backing us in last year's Kickstarter at the intro level. Um, we've had many, many people do exactly the same thing for 2021. Cannot thank you enough. Um, bowled over, really, continue to be. So thank you. The Kickstarter remains open. If you want to get yourself an intro or shout out or enter predictions or just, you know, do your bit, chuck a few quid in the the kitty, whatever. We're much appreciate. We're very much appreciating everything we receive. And uh, yeah, we have another tennis podcast for you today. This one with a special interview, um, an interview I did earlier today with Chris Commode, the former ATP boss, the CEO, uh, until late last year. Um, so get into lots and lots of discussion about the situation that tennis finds itself in within the pandemic his time in the job, all sorts of things which we're going to cover in this edition of the podcast. Matt is here. Hello, Matt. You are right? Good to be here. Yes. Yes. Normally Good. at this Good. time of year, I'm sort of really missing tennis. But I think the five-month break that we had this year has kind of made me a bit immune to not having tennis. Does that, is that a sad or weird thing to say? I'm not, I'm not feeling oh, feel, the effects I of the off I feel the opposite. Season. Okay. Interesting. How are you feeling, Catherine? I miss it more i think because i don't have a fixed point to look forward to Mm. um i'm sort of okay with missing things if i if i know if it's a okay if it has a degree of certainty to it and i could think oh if i could treat it as deferred gratification which is kind of the flavor of 2020 isn't it deferred gratification um but that i i feel like that only works if you have a have an idea and a certain amount of certainty about when you're when and what you're deferring to. Mm. I think for me, that's part of the reason why I'm feeling how I'm feeling. I think normally the missing tennis comes with a lot of excitement about the tennis to come. And I, I don't have that excitement because it's so, so I... uncertain and up in the air. Maybe maybe when we get some more concrete plans, I will start to count down the days a little bit more. I don't know. 
I I believe the Abu Dhabi exhibition event is going ahead quite soon. That's usually over the Christmas New Year period. Yeah, isn't it? I think it might be a bit sooner this year. Right. Um, mm. If anyone's really desperate, <laughs> I, I could do for with an absolute <laughs> cast iron calendar to start mm. the year with to know what the event to focus on is because. I, I haven't really thought about missing tennis the last few days at all um, until right now. And now I'm really missing it. <laughs> it starts in, a week in, today, does Abu Dhabi. Does Gosh, it? Who's there? Put on your minutes. hats, folks. Crazy. Who's playing? I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to download the website, but it's wanting me to confirm that I'm not a robot, <laughs> um, which is quite a high level of security for a, the homepage of a exhibition tennis event are you going to pass the test is the big question uh, well i've i've said i'm not a robot I don't, I don't <laughs> that's exactly what a robot what... would say <laughs> we don't know whether Catherine's a robot or not she's sitting in the dark right now and we can uh, barely see her yes um, these are yes these are not ideal surrounds for podcasting just now this, this is the final podcast Catherine will ever record in her long time flat Yes, in my flat that I've lived in for nearly nine years. Mm. Yeah, I'm in so a very misty-eyed place. She's <laughs> surrounded by boxes. There are other boxes in the new flat. New podcast coming from there on Monday, if we can persuade yeah. her to come Does on. Does that mean the tennis podcast was, was born while you were in this flat? Yes. Very soon after I moved in, actually. I moved in here in March 2012, and our first podcast was in May 2012 so obviously our first one was recorded in david's parents mm. house up in solihull but i believe our second one was recorded m- remotely uh with me here in here in this flat and Come i actually remember when i first moved in being with uh being with a couple of flatmates and them listening to that first to our first podcast david and you know, sort of teasing me about it and me sort of having to leave the room because I couldn't listen to my own voice. And yeah, I'm in that, I'm in that sentimental uh, phase where I'm, you know, oh, this is the last time I'll use the sink in this flat. This is the last time I'll brush my teeth in this flat. It's the last time I'll turn the telly on in this flat. (laughs) And on and on it goes, folks. I'm finding sentimentality everywhere. And then Taylor Swift goes and announces that she's, releasing a sister album to folklore at 5am so i'm obviously not going to sleep <laughs> and uh yeah she's going to release some suitably wistful music to provide a soundtrack to a, a very wistful moment in my to life mark that occasion 5am mm. a bit inconsiderate isn't it uh well she it's dropping uh, as they say at midnight eastern time which is 5am here i don't think i i mean i doubt i'll sleep very much tonight anyway so um it's actually pretty convenient that there's something worthwhile being awake for at 5 a.m right it's like the australian open of <laughs> single yes. releases isn't it yes right. david okay. yes yeah see I'm except on it. it's a certainty oh well we're getting closer folks it, we, it still looks like february the 8th uh as a starting point for the australian open no i haven't really heard any other firm news about that i'm gonna have um, a grand slam birthday so yeah Ooh. cranky it's usually only David that gets one of those. 
Yeah, that'll be very exciting. Um, so we'll we'll bring you the news on the tennis uh, as and when we have it. We haven't got any at the moment. Um, and <laughs> hence why have we've, you noticed uh, that we're eight minutes into this podcast and we've not not brought you any no <laughs> any tennis the, news whatsoever? No coincidence there. So let's uh, let's hear in the meantime from the interview that I did earlier today with Chris Commode, who was formerly a colleague of mine at Queens. He was the tournament director for a long long time at uh, Queen's and then moved on to the ATP at the end I think of 2013 spent six years in the job and first thing I asked him was really how he looks back on that time in his life many people have asked me that question and um, in fact they phrase it differently they go would you do it again and um, which which is slightly different <laughs> I it was a huge honor to um uh, lead the organization and um it was an incredible six years um and yeah th- thoroughly i was about to say i thoroughly enjoyed it there, there were some very heavy moments um very stressful moments but uh you know to have to have the chance to uh lead a global sport was fantastic and you know i look back and had a year to sort of contemplate of you know, and, you know, when you're in a job like this, you sometimes get so immersed that you fail to recognize the achievements sort of thing. But, you know, I look back and at some of the numbers, they're, they're, they're quite, you know, impressive. And I'm very proud of them. I mean, remember, you know, just looking at the things like the gross revenues of the tour were, you know, in 2013, were about 97 million and 2018, you know, grew to, grew to over 150 million. The prize money again went from 85 million in 2013 to about 135 million, sort of 58 percent growth. The number of players earning over a million dollars in prize money uh, grew over 90 percent, which was great. And you know, and also, you know, there's lots written about lower ranked players earning money. One of the uh, personal achievements was that the the big growth was between really was between players between 50 and 100. There was like a 69% growth and 150 to 200, there was a you know 65% growth. So that redistribution of, of, of monies down to the lower ranked players was was great. And, and the same with ranking points as well. Um, and as for, for players, the pension funds, you know, just went through through the roof, which is key for these guys when they stop, stop playing. Uh, there was like a 60% growth in the pension fund um, so looking at the new events, obviously look at the O2 finals, look at the next gen uh, and the ATP Cup. You know, there was a, a hell of a lot done. And I think we moved the game forward. And when listening to that, I would imagine a fair few of our listeners are thinking, well, if that's the case, why are you not in the job right now? Why? What, what <laughs> can you tell me about your departure and what led to it? Well, I think it's a very uh, political job. I've been, and I said it in the job, and I will continue to say it now, I'm very, very supportive of the ATP um, as an institution. Uh, I actually believe it works. There are many people that can make very easy comments from the side saying it's just impossible to have a a player organisation and a tournament organisation together. My line to that would be that it's one of the few sports where players and tournaments have a say in their sport, you know, on a daily basis. Unlike, say, some of the um, 
American sports where um, uh, you have collective bargaining agreements and they have a big fight over, you know, over prize money every or, or, or income over you know every five years. And there's a huge fight, and then they don't really speak. The reason I think the ATP structure works is people do have a voice on on a daily basis. And you know, I look 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 back at over, you know over all the votes that we have, and you know it was almost ninety eight percent of the decisions were made in consensus, which is which is great. Obviously, I sat in the middle of players and tournaments. At certain times of the six year tenure, people will say he's a tournament guy, he's a player guy. You speak to the tournaments, they'll say he's a player guy. You speak to the players, they say he's a tournament guy, and that's just the nature of the job. Um, but when you look back and you go, ninety-eight percent of the decisions were made in consensus is is quite an achievement. And actually, rather rather alarmingly, I think that there were over three hundred and fifty votes in my time, and you know there were only um, eight votes that needed a, a, a tie-break decision where you know the chairman steps in, and you know seven of those actually those eight were in favour of players. And I, I was the first and only CEO to ever break the tie on prize money, which produced the biggest single increase to players uh, in the history of the tour. So when you ask the question, what happened? It is ultimately politics. And, uh, you know, that that's the if there is a weakness in the system, it's, you know, it's just sometimes the politics overrides the overall desire for everybody to make the game better, fundamentally. Um, and so I, I believe in the structure and it's, you know, really it's about, uh, it's about the people. It's getting the right people working together to uh, deliver a, a common goal. But yeah, so it's a long-winded answer, but basically politics. Mm. Obviously, a lot's happened in the last year. We'll get on to what has happened in the world and, 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 on, and on the tour in a little while. But I just wanted to know, when you were coming towards the end of last year, what did you want to do with another term if you, if you had have carried on? I think really expand it. We had one, you know, one of the big uh, strategies I had, which was, or, you know, we had at the time was really the uh, a prize money, getting a prize money formula so that... Um, it just makes the running the business so much easier if you can avoid every two or three years having a, uh, a meltdown and the two sides not speaking. We managed to get that in the 500s category, which was, uh, a, a, again, the first time in the history of the tour. Um, I would have carried on to try and get this in the 1000s and 250 categories, and I think it will happen because there's now momentum to... Uh, you know, once you make that first step, it's always the first step that's hardest. And as we achieved it in the 500 category, I think we will, or the ATP will achieve it in the thousands and, and 250s. So that that just means the running of the business is, is easier because it takes out the toxic conversation uh, about money. And you can get onto the good stuff about actually promoting promoting the sport. I think I would have, again, we were at the early stages of Next Gen. We did, you know, two productions of it. It's an event that I'm very proud of because I believe it was a sport that looked one of the few sports that are genuinely looking ahead. And we were very open at the time of saying not that everything that we did there will end up on tour, but at least let's trial it and, and see what works and what doesn't. 
but again avoids the conversation of five years time saying should we have a shot clock you know you try it and it works or it doesn't work so i would have liked to have more fun doing that um and I think building, you know, I got the ATP Cup up and running. And, and one of the strategies behind that was the, you know, the, the players were asking at the time for the opportunities for new events and growth. This delivered a $15 million tournament for players. But uh, so for, it works, works for them on that regard. How I saw it was actually bookending the calendar so that the ATP had an event to open the calendar at the beginning of January and then finish it at the NITO ATP finals. And also the ATP tour really got momentum really from Indian Wells in March. So you look at the TV numbers from January through to March, you know, they were they were okay, but they were sort of fairly flatlining, then a huge boost in Indian Wells, and then it carried on into Miami, Madrid, Rome, etc. So I thought, well, if you start off with a bang in January um, with big numbers, maybe then you can continue that all the way through the other tournaments in, in January and February uh, into Indian Wells. Um, and I believe it will do that. At the same time, Chris, you, I remember you, in the in the lead-up to the ATP Cup being launched, I remember you saying... The idea of having two team events so close to one another, like the ATP Cup and the Davis Cup finals that they were putting together, to have them sort of within eight weeks of each other, you said would be insane. Yep. Um, that was that was a, what a year or so, a year or a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. What what's why did you think that? What what's what does that say about the sport? Um, I, yeah, no, you're right. I did say it, and I and and um, and, I, and I still agree with that now. I think it's. Um, like a lot of things, if you go back in, in tennis or in, in any sports, you know, when you make big changes, it will ruffle feathers. People posture, protect their own turf. And then what happens after a couple of years of these changes, people then find ways to work it all out. I mean, it's a tiny version of Brexit. Uh, so um, I think that, um, you know, to have them so close together is is ludicrous. Um, I think it will change. How it will change, I don't know. But at some point, I think everyone, it was a bit of brinkmanship from both sides, thinking the other would back down. And I think now they're both up and running. Over the next couple of years, there'll be a solution. I, I, I fundamentally believe, and very, very strongly, that the event should be played at the start of the year. And the reason being is all the players are fresh. It doesn't affect any of the player participation throughout the rest of the year. You start inserting it in the calendar and it has knock-on effects for every single event, which I believe the ATP as a half uh, tournament-owned organization should protect the tournaments as well. So if you put it at the end of the season, one or, you know, if you have it post the World Tour Finals, for instance, um, the majority of players have finished two, three weeks earlier so it cuts right into their off time. Um, players will then, at the end of the season, because they get uh, obviously more tired, then will start to make choices about where they play. And that's really detrimental to the other events on the tour. So I think week one, if, if they could come together, would be a brilliant result. Right. So you'd, you'd, you'd have, in an ideal world, a combined thing, whether it's called the ATP Cup, whether you continue with the, the brand of the Davis Cup, but you'd have it at the start of the year. 100%, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, well, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, I mean, logically, where where because um, I, I spent a long time, a couple of years, uh, talking to Gerard Piquet because we were going to do something together initially, and then w- when we couldn't work it out, he then went to the ITF uh, with the Cosmos Group. Um, and Gerard, who I like a lot, uh, very smart, um, very ambitious, very driven, um, massive tennis fan, so huge passion to make this event work. But obviously coming from football and logic, and I got his argument and I kept saying to him, you know, yes, at the end of the season, it, you know, logically, if you were doing the calendar, you'd have, you know, the World Cup at the end of the season. But it doesn't work because of, you know, tennis is played from January, you know, pretty much through the whole year. So um, it's just not a good time to have it, in my view. You finish your tenure at the ATP and within months, there's a global pandemic. I mean, extraordinary timing for a start. Um, But what would you have done as ATP CEO when the reality of the pandemic became clear, i.e. Indian Wells gets cancelled? What would your first move have been in that that situation, do you think? Did you ever sort of think about that? Um, I I, I, I didn't really. I I felt Huge empathy towards uh, Andrea Gaudenzi, who, who took over from me. I mean, what a what a tough year to start. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want that on anybody at all to deal with. So, no, I, I, I haven't spent much time thinking about that. I mean, it, it's an incredibly difficult situation for everybody. I mean, this is not just in tennis in, and sport, but just everybody on a day-to-day you know, their day-to-day lives, um, you see how it's affecting people, you know, jobs, mental health, everything. It's a shocking, shocking time. Um, so I think you have to keep the sport and tennis in perspective. It's just trying to get through this unprecedented time, really. And, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel now. It's going to take a while. It's, going I think, going to be another quite rough year. Certainly the first six months of next year are going to be very rough as well, I think. But the sport will come out of it. I mean, I think the one, if you're you're looking at grabbing at straws and trying to look at the positives, I think when times are bad, that's when the ability to actually make bigger changes. So the sport working together more closely um, will help. When everybody is doing well, I mean, really well, no one wants to change anything at all because ultimately when a big decision has to be made, you weigh up going, well, actually, we're doing, we're doing okay. I mean, we're doing really well. So what, why would we take a leap of faith into doing something differently? When businesses start to struggle, then you get people focusing very, very quickly into thinking, you know, maybe there are other ways and better ways. And so I, I think the opportunity will, will produce some good results in terms of coordination of the sport and things like that. And Andrea has been very open when he came in, quite rightly, you know, saying the sport needs to work together uh, better. And uh, I think that will happen. Uh, Do you really think that that is realistic? I mean, you had six years of it. And as you've said there, you, you were hoping to do a combined team event. That wasn't doable. There's a lot of politics, you said, which is one of the reasons you ended up leaving. I mean, how realistic is it that all of these factions can work together and, and for the better of the sport? 
Well, I think if there's a time, this is the time. Let's put it that way. I think um, I think you will see people, for financial reasons, needing to um, to start uh, thinking of uh, different ways. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite optimistic actually. Actually, uh, I think it was back in about April or May when Roger Federer tweeted out of the blue. Oh, uh, wouldn't it be a good idea if the ATP and the WTA merged? And within about 20 minutes, Rafael Nadal said, oh, good idea, Roger. Let's do that. And I don't think we've heard too much more about it since then. There was a lot of agreement at the time. I remember Billie Jean King saying, yeah, that's what I've wanted for decades. Is it a good idea? And how realistic is it? I think, you know, all these things, I mean, the WTA and the ATP merger, it's not the first time uh, that it's been mentioned and uh, I think that um, it depends what you mean by it. That's what pe- people make these statements, like um, uh, almost political statements of it. And does does that mean one organisation centralising everything? So is it does you know is it is is this because it's cost saving, or or is this just the image of the game, or combination of both? I, I don't know. I mean, all these things have again have. They're very complex because you've got history of the organizations. I, I think where it will start is that there'll be much more collaboration, which, again, is a, is a good thing. And that's the, start, that's the starting point, really. And, uh, you know, then we see where we go. Just generally on the, the way they've, they've, they've handled the, the fallout now, the, the way you see things going from here, we, we, we've heard about the Australian Open probably needing to go back a few weeks and there, there are question marks over whether Indian Wells, the reporting is that Indian Wells is likely not to happen uh, this year or, or in 2021 as well as, as in 2020. Um, if, if you could put together a, a calendar, how, how would you do it? I mean, if, 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 you could throw it all up in the air and start again. What what should be happening? Well, it's an incredibly easy thing to say how you would do the ideal calendar. You go to ten, you go to everybody who's ever worked in tennis, and you know everyone's got a different view. I mean, now it's slightly different because it's not like doing a new calendar and that's how it's going to be forever. This is adjusting during this time. So, what's so difficult for both tours is that. The rules in, you know, unlike domestic sports where, you, you know, you've seen how difficult it is in, in, you know, in football to get that up and running and whatever. But when you but at least you've got all the people in one country. Once you have a global sport and it's the in effect, the traveling circus moving around the world, you're, you're at the mercy of, you know, a whole raft of government, individual government decisions that are all and, and regulation that is that's not consistent so you know some rules apply in other countries and not to others so it is incredibly challenging times and everyone is doing their best to try and you know work out the optimum calendar for this period but it is certainly not easy mm. you've said in this conversation that you think the atp tour is still i think the best set up for the sports for it to be a partnership between the tournaments and the players and you feel that that is workable still what did you think when you saw the photo of the players on the court in new york effectively setting up a union a player union uh, the professional tennis players association again it's not uh, you know been around tennis a long time uh, as you have david um you know it's not the first time that has happened 
you know, one of, one of the things that uh, I think, you know, comes about is players feel that Sometimes decisions are made that, you know, they'll discuss in a player council, they'll have a vote at a player council, and there's almost a feeling of, oh, then that will happen. But actually what happens is, you know, they vote in a player council to then go to the board, which is both sides. Um, And then often, you know, they don't get exactly what they want, but nor, nor, nor do the tournaments. So... I think, you know, there's an element of frustration there. But I think, you know, that comes down to educating the guys about the system and and why it's beneficial. But I think, you know, what's slightly ironic is going back years, and I'm terrible on dates, but, you know, the ATP used to be just the player union. And it was actually the players that then wanted to go in with, with the tournaments for the reasons that we say is why it's successful now. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we just have to observe from the sidelines. Uh, but my personal view is I, I, I don't see that heading in a, in a major way. But I think that, uh, you know, it's a it's a good message to be heard. And everybody in tennis will, will listen. Do, do the players not need their own representation in order to... Well, they do. Well, they, they, they do. They have their board members. Who are who are representing them? Just as the tournaments have their board members who are representing them, and the player board reps often will go out and get advice and from outside uh, councils and you know things like that. So, yeah, no, I think they they are represented well. I mean, the, you know, the, the 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 struggle with it is obviously the needs of the number one in the world are very different to the needs of the guy ranked two thousand. So. That, that's quite tough, but almost the same on the tournaments. You know, the thousands' needs are very different to the 250s. Mm. Isn't Novak Djokovic, though, as, as the world number one, is he not basically saying that he's tr- doing this to try to further the cause of the of the lower-ranked player? I, 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 I wouldn't want to get into, in, into, <laughs> into that. Or, or, or what the motives are. Um, you know, I think genuinely, yeah, trying to help the, help the game. But again, I think I need. You know, you just it's easy from the side when you take advice from people outside the sport who don't know it to make sweeping statements about how easy it is to adjust this and adjust that. I mean, uh, for instance, I one of the things that you know I used to read was that the lower the ATP under my watch was, you know, we weren't looking after the lower ranked players, which is just fundamentally untrue because the numbers the numbers speak for themselves. Um, but it's like, how do you make you know, people saying, you know, challengers playing on the challenger tour is is very difficult. It's tough to make a living. Well, yes, it, yes, it is. But equally, these tournaments, you know, none of them are making money. So at the, at the end of the day, it's got to be workable for people to put the events on and for players to play in it. And it opens up then the wider discussion of what is a professional tennis player? You know, is it the guy ranked 2000? Um, what that level is? Uh, you know, personally, I think, you know, we have a system where what you don't ever want to have is a system where people are able to play the sport at say the challenger level and have a career of playing that for 10 years that is not the objective of the challenger tour the challenger tour is a is a stepping stone to make it on the main tour 
So obviously you want to take the costs away, you want to be able to make it financially viable, for accessible for everybody, wherever they are in the world, to be able to participate. But it isn't a 10-year career playing on the challenge at all. Mm. Do, do you have a view of how many players should be able to make a professional living in men's tennis? It's, uh, I've discussed it with so many people in tennis. And, you know, there seems to be like a, uh, a number anywhere between talk to people that have a view from, you know, some will go extreme and say, really, if you are in the qualifying of a Grand Slam, so obviously the Grand Slam draw is 128 draw, then you have the qualifiers as well. So is that 250, you know, but probably the lowest at 250 down to 500, I think is the general consensus. Mm, yeah, very interesting. And, and, and by the way, I w- this isn't me saying, I, I, you know, I would take away the points because you, you need the funnel system. You need players to be able to play in the sport. So, but just that, that you, you know, so there has to be, there can be like a second tier tour, you know, that still have ATP points, but maybe that aren't the same as the tour points see what I mean so it's drawing that distinction one of the uh, one of the stories that has come out in the last few months have been the allegations of domestic abuse against Alexander Zverev by his former girlfriend they are allegations he's denied them um, but at the time there was some discussion about the fact that the ATP weren't making any statement about those allegations or acknowledging them. They eventually did after two weeks and they 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 made the point that uh, they abhor uh, domestic violence and they expect all of their members to do so as well. But there was no suggestion of an internal investigation handled by themselves, which I believe is what happens in some of the American sports leagues. Why isn't there a a power for a governing body like the ATP to to launch an investigation into allegations such as those? The difference between the the team sports in the States that you uh, compare it to is they they are under contract as a team, um, you know, as a uh, being a member of a team sport. So there'll be very strict contractual regulations about how you're paid, what you have to do, uh, you know, for the club, et cetera. And and then a whole road, sort of raft of processes and and legislation and regulation about things like this with the sport being individual it's probably uh well it's not probably is tougher uh to enforce those i i don't know whether the wta has one i don't think the pga has one which is similar comparisons but i think ideally these situations should be so i mean in the, in the past all these instances or anything like that was handled under the you know bringing the game into disrepute so it sort of covered a whole general um uh, swathe of um uh, incidences that could potentially happen um and then it would go to the board and the board would then decide whether further action would would take place internally but i think you know if these things could be handled centrally would be great. Uh, I, I think probably having someone like the TIU to handle it centrally would be uh, a, a good a good thing. It would have to be agreed by all the parties in tennis, so ATP, WTA, ITF, all the four slams. You know, I think it's possible. And so when these things come up, and you know, yes, there isn't an individual domestic violence policy. As I said, it does fall under the bringing the game into disrepute one. But again, I think when these things come to light, 
that's again one of these circumstances that I talk about where when things are going bad, like you know financially or something like this uh, in in PR wise, the sport gets together and goes, you know what? We should all of us as sport have uh, a central policy, it, you know, because in terms of that investigation, you know, who would do it and. For me, the obvious one is the TIU, but yeah, that's the tennis integrity unit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, I mean, again, when these things sort of happen, you know, everyone is negatively impacted by the situation. So reviewing it, you know, would be a good thing to do, and I'm sure it will happen. Mm, interesting. Let's let's see if it does. Um, Chris, what what is your future hold? Would you would you like to return to tennis? Well, I'm uh, well. So I'm currently uh, working for a new organisation, vice chairman of the uh, PTO, which is the Professional Triathletes Organisation, and um, it's uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. Very interesting. It's a um, an American organisation that's gone into a sport sort of at the bottom level in terms of a startup, and it's to try and bring triathlon to um, a wider media market. And to do new events, so it's it's very exciting to do something creatively different. How do you make a sport that has mass participation globally into uh, a watched sport? So that's good fun. I'm also um, executive advisor for the uh, Rolex Monte Carlo Masters, so that keeps my hand in tennis. So I'm overseeing overseeing that event, which is uh, one of my favourite Master Series events. So I'm still in, still in tennis and um, because, you know, it's uh, been a passion of mine all my life. Mm. What, what's the latest with Monte Carlo? Because obviously that's another tournament that's, that got cancelled last year and, and would hope, I imagine, to, to run again in 2021. Yeah, so we're, again, looking at, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in that date for sure. We will... 100% run the event. It's just now we're at the mercy of, um, as as uh, as you're well aware, whilst it's called the Monte Carlo, the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters, it is actually the the country club is actually in France. So we're at the mercy of the, uh, of the French authorities in terms of in April how many people will we be allowed in 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 the stadium. And the difficulty is like Queens where you have to build the infrastructure. Um, we have to do the same thing here. So it's a very similar event and make that call sort of mid-January, really. Um, so it's tough to predict, you know, two, three months ahead of, of what's going to be. But we will hold it uh, under what circumstances, who knows? So it could be it could be a behind-closed-doors one, worst-case scenario. Worst-case worst scenario is behind-closed-doors, but we certainly won't cancel, that's for mm. sure. Mm. Okay, well, let's hope there are brighter days ahead for all. Oh, there um, will be. There will be. And, uh, and that that tournament goes very well for you. Thanks very much for your time here on the Tennis Podcast. Uh, David, great. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So there's uh, Chris Commode, and first things first, Catherine, nice to know that we definitely have one tournament that's going to happen <laughs> in 2021 because uh, Chris has told us Monte Carlo is on. And that is, uh, that's kind of, that really gave me a bit of a boost when he told me that. Yeah, I don't know if that's an exclusive confirmed tennis tournament for 2021. It, I mean, I know we're grasping at straws, but that feels quite big. Mm. Well, considering um, that was one of the ones that went last year, and it's this great historic mm. traditional tournament. It's it's the start of the clay court season in many ways, and and it would it would be another massive loss if it didn't happen. So it, it already feels just I don't know just a little a little morsel of good news there. Something to look forward to, mm. isn't it? You know, we're all trying to sort of punctuate our calendars with things to look forward to. Um, and that is something for me, um, you know, a little sprinkle of certainty. And I also think, I mean, I, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like, I mean, obviously the hope is that that it will be possible to safely have some kind of crowd there. But it feels to me like one of the tournaments that might cope better without a crowd. I mean, obviously, I, I think we've, we've settled on the theory that, um, or the hypothesis that it, it's easier to pull off no crowds in an outdoor event than it is an indoor event. I feel pretty confident about that. Um, but just because of the, the vista yes, and the positioning is such a feature of that event, you know, that will still be there. And it's almost as if the, the crowd are, uh, are just sort of onlookers populating that, that vista. Um, yeah. and I'm not saying they won't be missed. They will be, um, but I, I think that tournament is quite well placed to cope with the compromised situation. Yeah, I think you're right. I was talking not that long ago to somebody who works in the Wimbledon broadcasting operation about, you know, just thoughts as to if if and Wimbledon have already said that they are going ahead, come what may, and if that means be, being played without a crowd, so be it. And and the point was that with tournaments like that, 
where Wimbledon is such a visual tournament. There's so much you can use to 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 fill in the blanks, fill in the gap that the crowd not being there gives everybody. Uh, and it's obviously you, it's it's always going to be a shame, um, and it would be in Monte Carlo. But you're right. I mean, there's just so much. There's there is the ocean, but there's also the cliffs behind you, the mountains behind you. It's an incredible place to be. I mean. Um, if if ever anybody gets a chance to go there, I would I would highly recommend that one. Yeah, if you really want to feel poor, that is the place to go. <laughs> yeah, and I lived there four years, and I felt poor throughout. <laughs> yeah, when when the cheapest thing to order is an eighteen euro beer, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> You've been to that place as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Matt. Your thoughts on on listening to them? I mean, there was a lot to go out there, wasn't there? I mean, there's a, you know, he was there, he was there for quite a long time, and I mean, it is extraordinary that he happened to finish his tenure at the beginning or just ahead of the pandemic. Um, but I mean, what struck you you most? I mean, that the player, the, I th- I feel like the, the the sheer faith he still has in the the format, the system of the ATP is is quite interesting. I wondered whether having come out of it that he might be a little bit disillusioned with with the the inertia of of that system at times. Yeah, that was that was very interesting. He was very strong on that. I thought his line about the fact that so many of the decisions that were made while he was there were made in consensus that would back up his his thinking that the system is okay. Um and the line that of the eight votes that went to a tie break and he was the one sort of making the decision he sided with the players on seven of eight of those votes. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating line when you consider Mm -hmm. so many of the things that we've heard about why they wanted to set up the PTPA, why they wanted a change of leadership. I mean, I always find it a little bit difficult to talk about ATP politics because we just hear these reports, these nuggets, and it kind of becomes a question of, who do you believe but i've i've never heard those numbers before and it'd be fascinating to put those numbers to the people behind the ptpa for example and say you know what does this say um because it, it strikes me and i think chris is saying it there that they didn't necessarily have a problem with chris commode that they had a problem with the structure they've they've talked so much about wanting to change the structure and have more player representation and I don't know those numbers there would would probably say that maybe that isn't necessary to bring through change and have an impact and give the players a voice so so from that side of things I thought it was really interesting and Chris clearly you know he was very quick to come out with his figures about the way they've been helping lower ranked players and the redistribution of prize money and I think clearly he thinks there's been a misrepresentation of what he was aiming to do and what he did do while he was while he was in charge. Um, yeah, just just very interesting. I, I I would be interested to hear the other side of things as well and how they would respond to to those figures. Hmm. I think whenever you hear Vashik Pospisil talk, for instance, and and years ago. And erotic. A lot of the frustration came with the percentage of overall overall revenues that they felt the players were getting. That they, and whereas they felt they should just be getting a lot, a, a much bigger piece of that pie. You could feel. I felt Catherine. I mean, Chris was careful 
It, he didn't want. He didn't want to make a big scene, but you could hear the frustration of constantly hearing people whinging and saying what should be happening when maybe they just don't actually know how hard hard it is to get anything done. Mm. Yeah, because I, you know, and and I have to declare an interest as as you always have done, David. We we know Chris. You know him better than I do. We know him. We like him. We like the way he operates. Um, but he's always struck me as a non-politician operating in a in a political world. Sort of somebody that's sort of able to adapt themselves to to work with the politics. But but he's not a natural politician at all um and that's what's appealing about him um i don't mean in a sort of trump trumpian trumpian <laughs> boris johnsony way by the way by the way but you know that is in vogue at the moment a a fatigue with with people that are very overtly political and he's not you know he's a straight shooter and you might not agree with the direction in which he's shooting but he is there is an integrity to him um and he has the he does have an air about him and i'm very sympathetic to it um of you know somebody that's been you know somebody that was once a wide-eyed liberal and has been worn down by years in politics and the frustrations and the compromises of it all that's that's how it feels to me and that makes me sad because i i feel like he I'm not saying he didn't achieve a lot and he made a good case for what he achieved. And I, I believe he did a good job at the helm, not, you know, ex- exclusively a good job. There are, there are things that I would have liked to have seen done differently, but in the circumstances, I think he did a good job, but I think, I think there was wasted potential there with him. And I think he, he brought, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he probably feels that. I think he probably feels like, my God, if it weren't for all these stupid mechanisms and politics and everything the things i could have done the things i could have changed and i can imagine that feeling yeah uncomfortable just so we're clear what what things would you have liked to have seen differently over the years i i i mean i I would have liked to have seen more embracing of of a union between the two tools more more steps towards that more more div- more of a move towards diversity within the ATP. I, I believe that is a problem for the ATP. Um, I'm, and I don't, I don't know if they're aware of it. You know, it's, it's a, it is an organization that represents men's tennis. And you could, you could argue that that is a justification for it being a largely male organization. Um, I don't personally see it that way at all. And it is an incredibly male um, organization and I would like to see that sort of looked at and addressed and at least sort of have a light shone on it and examined and hey we're really male like let's look at that and see whether whether you know there are unconscious biases at play here and whether we can do anything about those I, I maybe that all went on I don't know but those are the sorts of things that that I would have liked to have seen um, and would like to see in the future looked at. Um, I, think, I think that's where we see a, a case for opportunity really at the moment, isn't it? Because he made the point to me that when things are going well, you, you, the, the, 
the quest for change is often that much that much less intense that there mm. that you, you you almost need problems to to sometimes look inwards i think maybe a bit more and, and, and i think that's very logical that does make a lot of sense but just to use an analogy of a football team you know when a football team's doing well they should still be buying players and trying to improve mm. you don't you don't, you shouldn't wait for a problem to then change everything yeah. and i think Alex Ferguson has provided the model yeah, for, for us exactly. all. Exactly. And, and I go back to what John Millman said at the start of this pandemic and when, you know, when there was a real push to try and help lower ranked players. And John Millman said, well, it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for that to happen. It shouldn't have taken allegations of abuse against one of the top players for people to think, oh, maybe we need some kind of policy in place that means that we investigate these things uh it shouldn't have taken a pandemic to think oh we need more unity between the atp and the wta and i I can understand why a problem sets those wheels in motion much much faster but maybe maybe there's a case that for quite a few years atp had a good thing going and slight i don't know slightly rested on rested on its laurels a little bit or didn't kind of look for those problems before they arrived kind of thing i don't know but and i do think that's a a luxury and complacency that that maybe men's organizations have over over women's organizations you know um that's sort of me shooting from the hip there react i haven't that's not a fully formulated theory but you know and perhaps understandably but i do think there's been a certain complacency about about men's tennis for the past past decade um, and well, maybe up until a couple of years ago, when it felt like sort of a bit of panic set in about the mm. the post post big three slash big four era. I, I would say that although the next gen haven't established themselves as the next gen themselves, and the ATP would have hoped they might have done, I would say that's one of the one of the strengths of his yes. tenure was was mm. acknowledging that the big three ain't gonna last forever. Yeah. And he and he created that tournament mm, and for sure. really tried to find a way to communicate them, you know? Yeah, definitely. And the he's obviously proud of using the next gen finals as a as a testing ground, as a canary down the mine for rule changes, you know, again, sort of the way he talked about that, you could hear that sort of exasperation in his voice of how difficult it is to implement change. And sort of the only way to kind of sneak it through the back door was to, or was or is to try and use those next gen finals as a, look, there's no big deal. It's not a tour event. Let's just, let's just try it and see there. And then let's have the argument. You know, you could hear that political exasperation in his voice when he was when he was talking about that, and I think that was actually quite a, a, a clever clever move from and him actually, to, I, to do just, that. Just thinking now that we have the pandemic and that we use the towels and the the bins sort of thing on the side, that feels like it's been going on forever now mm. to me. I, I don't, I barely remember ball kids oh. running out with towels. It's totally one of instantly one of those things like smoking in cinemas where you're like how did that ever happen you know when you watch an old or a period movie set in i don't know the 50s or whatever and there's smoke in a cinema Mm. i imagine the day after they banned smoking in cinemas everyone went my god did that really happen (laughs) and uh and on Um, planes yeah. yeah 
there is a in Home Alone two, which maybe Matt considers a really ancient <laughs> film, but I don't think of as a really ancient film. He has to. Kevin McAllister has to make sure he's not sitting in the smoking area of the plane. That was the nineties. <laughs> I, I remember smoking on planes. It was. Uh, oh my god! Uh, I, I, I'm going to name drop, um, <laughs> but I remember Andre Agassi in 1998 in Basel uh, walking into a press room for his press conference and asking me if he really had to do it in this room because it was full of smoke, absolutely full of smoke, Whoa. because everybody was smoking in the in the press room, um, and and I look, I had to explain to him it was all we got. <laughs> Um, so we did it and he did, he did a good job and he was on the way out. He said, he said, I can't believe it. And, you know, until a few years ago, the people were still smoking on planes. And, and, and of course that's, that's how it was. Um, so there you are. There's, there's the name drop for this episode. <laughs> you somehow managed to turn to my, turn my completely non-tennis analogy into something tennis David. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. No problem at all. Um, yeah, very interesting to hear from him now, and equally it will be interesting to see what Andre Gaudenzi is able to get done because he's they've released their new flashy marketing campaign over the last twenty four hours, haven't they? And I, I do like some of the videos that they've they've had out, really glitzy, short, uh, dynamic videos. Um, it's just that, I mean. It all looks great, but where's when do we get some actual tennis? You know, we uh, <laughs> suddenly there's no tennis, you know, and and there's none on the the immediate horizon. It's uh, it's a great advertising vehicle for something that doesn't exist at the moment. Um, so let's hope we have some good news on that score mm. fairly soon. That yeah, that the, the the Nadal one I really liked, but there's this random shot in the middle of him sort of emerging from a a pool. Daniel Craig. <laughs> style i sent you a message about this and nobody responded to it because it my phone autocorrected porn to pork <laughs> it was one of those times said, oh, where you actually wanted to write porn <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm so wholesome that i write pork a lot more often than i write porn <laughs> in my phone um and yeah, it's this really great video. And then, and like uh, in Fight Club, have you both seen Fight Club? You know where he's a no. he's a projectionist. Brad Pitt is a projectionist, and he just for his own amusement, he splices in like split second shots of penises <laughs> just to keep the audiences on their toes. I've gone off on another. T- Try and make this Tennessee, David. Um, that's what it felt like. It felt like. Um, well, in 1985, <laughs> no. It felt like the producer had been sent this really great, edgy, you know, Rafael Nadal um, marketing campaign video, and thought, I'll just, I'll just pop a video of him sort of emerging from a pool, slicking his hair back, soft porn style, and see if anyone notices. See if it gets through. Yeah, and it, it did get through, folks. <laughs> But no, they're, they're cool videos. Um, and it, well, what I, what I would say, <laughs> it does uh, it does whet the appetite for actual tennis to return. Uh, the appetite I, is already wetted. Yeah, and the David. WTA have also done a, a relaunch and a rebrand, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, new logo. They're, new what logo. What do you think of that? I like it. I think it was time. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I broadly, I broadly like. It. I've not, I've not seen that much of it to be honest, other than the, the logo, the posts from the players, which felt a bit coordinated and it, it felt it. too corporate to me. <laughs> it's incredibly coordinated. Yeah. Yeah. It was like somebody deciding to just sort of hack the internet and everybody gets yeah. the same message. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it, but... Do we know who the player is <laughs> in the logo? Because wasn't the the old Australian Open logo was Stefan Edberg? Edberg. Mm. I like to know who it's who it's based on. Oh. Mm. Well, you've got the connections, Matt. Make the, okay. make the necessary inquiries. Consider yeah. it done. We're going, to look, we're going to look into it. I'd be annoyed if it's just I, sort I of really generic I really want to know as well now. And it's not based on someone. Who, who's got the most... Mm, okay. The the 2000 ATP you, logo, I think, was Sampras. Okay. If um, you think you know what it is, let us know on social media. Mm, yeah. Who, who is, is the WTA logo? Yeah. That's the big question. And do they get royalties? Do they get image rights for it? If you're in silhouette, do you get image rights? Asking all the big questions here <laughs> on the tennis podcast. Yeah, the We're never going to get the answer to that one, are we? That's that's impossible. Catherine's having a glug of wine to just uh, just get through it's that. It's an one. emotional night. Yeah, it is. Uh, so Catherine's moving tomorrow. Good luck with your move, Catherine. Thank yes. you, David. Good luck. Um, we'll talk from your new apartment. We haven't got any shout-outs, have we, Matt? We're clean out. No, we are eagerly awaiting the turn of the new year to start our yeah. next batch of I don't know, two hundred or something. Well, yeah, I was going to say... We could all just do shout-outs to, like, you know, our friends and family. Right, well, I'd like to say hello to Rosie for keeping up spirits. Yeah. So there you are. She's great. Rosie Rosie the dog, by the way. Nobody's ever come across the the moment about three and a half, four years ago where Rosie (laughs) the dog, Catherine's parents' dog who I didn't know was in the room, suddenly gatecrashed the podcast. Um, it's, It's worth looking up. Um, yeah, anybody you'd like to shout out, Matt, at all? Uh, Russell and Brad, always. Oh, oh hello, good, Russell and Brad. Good choice, oh. good choice. Catherine's phone's going, that means... The, no, the... it's actually, the it's that's delivery. Oh, is it? Okay, oh, well, Catherine will go and get her sign. food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know you're moving out when you're getting takeaway every <laughs> night for a week before it, and after. Packed all my cooking equipment. Yeah. So 198 shout-outs have been bought for the year 2021 so far. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, and if you would like one, you can still get one. Go to our Kickstarter page, which is linked from our show notes on this podcast. Just um, scroll down, see if there's any of the of the categories you'd like to get involved with the show a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate everybody's support. It's been absolutely incredible. It really has. Um, Catherine, Matt, lovely to talk to you. Thank you to Chris Commode for coming on the tennis podcast great to hear from him and we'll be back again on monday mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.